just like to take an opportunity to say thank you to everybody who's helped um, over the for the preparations today. Thank you to our pianist, to Mary and Lilla, for playing so beautifully so we can worship the Lord. Thank you to the ladies who decorated the chapel and gave their time to do it. It looks beautiful and we really appreciate it. Thank you to those who delivered the leaflets. I think about a thousand leaflets went out around the neighbourhood and whether people came in or not, a testimony has been given to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Thank you to those who do the everyday things as well, changing the hymn numbers, making sure there's water up here for me, running the sound and and the, the camera. Thank you. It's a team effort and we give God the glory and thank you for your help. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles now to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, verses 35 to 58 as we consider more about the resurrection. Now, I wonder if anybody knows what this is. This is a 1928 Bentley 4.5 litre drop head. And it was bought in 1962 by Mr. Wallace, who paid a staggering £260 for it. Well, he was a student at the time, and he didn't have anywhere to store it, so he did the only logical thing, and he dismantled it and put it into lots of boxes, which he spread around his very untidy house, so that one day, when he had time, he could reassemble it and enjoy it. Well, sadly, he died without that ever happening, and his daughter, B, inherited all these parts. And so she got in touch with Bentley Motor Company and asked them if any of their mechanics would be up to the challenge of trying to reassemble it. And they were. It took them 10 months to gather all the bits from the different parts and places around the house, Mr. Wallace's house, and they restored it to full working order. It sold, I believe, for £800,000 and has since had more TLC poured into it and today is a stunning vintage motor car. I love the number plate as well, up to 100, up to 100 miles. Well, I tell you that story because it seems to me to illustrate perfectly what the Lord Jesus Christ will do one day for God's children. One day in the future, and who knows, it may be today, the Lord Jesus Christ will come back for his church and he will raise from the dead all the deceased believers, gathering their bodies together, and just like the parts of that Bentley, putting them back together again, only doing so even better than they were before. And this is what is called in the Bible the resurrection of the dead at Christ's coming and also the transformation of all living believers. You see, in Christianity, we don't just believe in soul salvation, we believe in whole salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May your spirit, soul and body be found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a whole salvation for those who trust in Christ. Now, let me be clear, we are not talking here about reincarnation, okay? That's something else altogether. If you believe in reincarnation, I wish you many happy returns. Although you won't get them, because Hebrews 9.27 tells us man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. 
No, we're not talking about reincarnation, but we're talking about the resurrection of believers from the dead. Just like when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 27, and dead believers rose with him in verse 52 and 53 and came out of their graves. That's what we are talking about here. And it's a wonderful thing to realize that God cares about our bodies, not just our souls. You know, this came, back to, came home to me some years ago when I read uh, the wonderful story of C.T. Studd, written by his son-in-law, Norman Grubb. And there's a beautiful story when C.T. Studd, who was a missionary to the Congo, was uh, in the Congo, and he was going down the river one day, and he saw another canoe coming in the opposite direction. Now, this was rare, unless it was natives, and didn't often see another canoe coming the other way. And what was even more unusual was it was a white man and he thought to himself this is unusual and so he called out he called out hello and the voice came back hello and he thought you know what that sounds like my dentist (laughs) and as he got nearer it turned out it was his dentist a man called Mr. Buck and Mr. Buck and he met and he said what on earth are you doing here Buck was a, a, a Christian He said, I've come to join you to preach the gospel. He said, but I'm here on another mission first and foremost. He said, I have bought you some new teeth and I've come to do some dentistry. The Lord laid it on my heart that you needed some dental work. And C.T. Studd did. He had been having problems with his teeth. And God sent him a dentist into the middle of the Congo jungle to help him because God cares for our bodies as well as our souls. And 1 Corinthians has a lot to do with our bodies. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why is this important? Well, if we were to ask Paul, why is this important? We would get three answers back. So let's ask Paul, why is this important? First of all, this is important to rebuke the false teachers. In verse 12, you'll notice uh, Paul mentions the problem of false teaching in Corinth. He said, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how is it, or how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And there was a problem in the church at Corinth. Whilst Paul had been preaching Jesus Christ risen from the dead, there were some people saying, oh, well, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that was a doctrine that was coming in and creeping in through the church. And Paul was warning them against it. In verse 33, he gave this warning. He said, do not be deceived in the context of all this. Evil company or bad company corrupts good habits. And he was warning these false teachers will get their way into you if you let them. So he was upholding uh, the truth and rebuking false teachers by writing this. Not only that, he was restoring future hope to them. If you look in verse 20, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now this was important again because of more false teaching that had come into the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had become persuaded of what we call Kingdom Now theology. And Kingdom Now theology says that this is it. We have everything of the kingdom right here and right now. And uh, in chapter 4 verse 8 Paul mocked them. He said you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Kingdom now says, basically, we've got it all now, which takes away any future hope 
Because if we got it all now, as Paul says in Romans 8, who hopes for what he does not have? But Paul says here, there is something to come. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised as the first fruits of those who fall asleep. And there was the first fruits gathered in in the harvest, and the, the, that was a taster of what was to come. Uh, you remember in the Feast of First Fruits in the Leviticus Law, Paul says what happened with Jesus is going to happen with us. So that restored future hope into the church. But also it revealed true doctrine or firm doctrine if you look in verse 51 of this passage paul uses an interesting word he says behold i tell you a mystery a mystery and the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead was something of a mystery to the new testament church now it wasn't a total unheard of thing because we did have people in the old testament who believed it like abraham he looked forward to it Uh, isaiah and daniel both prophesied about it and the lord jesus talked about it but its fullest revelation is given through the lips of paul he calls himself in chapter 4 verse 1 a steward of the mystery of god and that's what the apostles were And so it was uh, the contrast between looking at a parade through a knot in the fence and seeing what just little bits go by and not quite making out all of it, but you see some of it. Well, Paul comes along and he pushes down the fence so you can see the whole thing. And he lays out the mystery of the revelation uh, for them and for us. And uh, he had mentioned it in chapter 6, but now he comes to mention it in more detail. And so that's why Paul is writing about this. And I want to say, I I love this passage. This is a bit to me like that book on anti-gravity. You know, it's hard to put down. Once you get into this stuff, this is wonderful to realize that Christians hope for the future. So I want us to see tonight four things that Paul says about the resurrection body and the resurrection of believers. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the greatness of our resurrection bodies. If you look in verse 35, Paul says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? I wonder if you ever remember playing Spot the Difference as a child, where you look at one picture and try to see the difference with another. Well, recently the art world had a wonderful opportunity of playing Spot the Difference, because, believe it or not, another copy of the Mona Lisa has been found. And at first, they thought that it was another copy by Da Vinci. And it was so good that first they thought that. But then when they examined it more closely, they became persuaded it wasn't by Da Vinci, but it was by one of his students. And one of his students had made a copy of his master's work. Now, both were very good, but when you closely examine it with an art critic, you'll see one is definitely done by the master, And one is definitely done by the student. Well, here in verse 35 to 49, Paul plays a spiritual game of spot the difference, if you like, between our current bodies that we have here. uh, You're sitting in tonight in Union Chapel, I hope, and our resurrection body in the future. And he tells us that our resurrection body in the future is going to be greater in every way. For instance, it's going to be greater in style. It's going to be greater in style. That's what he says in verse 35 through to uh, verse 38. 
He says, uh, verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And Paul's saying this is how it works. Something has to die to, to be raised up. And you have to bury something to get something to rise up. And he uses a brilliant illustration in verse 37 to 38. He says, what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. What he uses is the illustration of a seed and a plant. Now, he uses the illustration of grain. I'm going to use the illustration of daffodils because they're out at the moment and they look beautiful, don't they? Okay. Now, when you sow a daffodil, what do you sow? You sow that. Now, that's not great looking, is it? You know, it looks like an onion. But what you get is that. Now, it's the same body. It's not a different thing. But it comes up in greater style than it got put in the ground. Do you see that? And by the way, people often say, oh, I can't wait till we get our new bodies. I've got to tell you, you're not going to get a new body. Your body is going to be the same body that put in the ground. But it's going to come up in greater style. Gets put in the ground looking like that. (laughs) But you can see the life coming out of it in Christ. But it's going to be changed And it's going to be made like that daffodil. It's going to be made new. And that's a a wonderful picture that Paul uses here. It's going to be greater in style. That's what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. You know, one person who really got the grasp of this was the uh, American uh, 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 founding father, Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin, who was uh, heavily influenced by George Whitfield's ministry, he has a, a, a gravestone and he has also a plaque, a memorial plaque in Philadelphia. And the memorial plaque, which he wrote himself, says this. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. (laughs) Isn't that great? He got the the gist of what Paul was saying. It's like a new edition of a a famous book. I've got lots of copies of Pilgrim's Progress at home, you know, and... uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, my favourite one, was, was one that was a new edition that was given uh, to me some time back. And it's just beautiful. But it's the same story. It comes out in new style. Well, your body is going to have a greater style when it comes. It's also going to come in greater splendour, says Paul in verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Now, he uses here uh, an illustration and he he makes the point that we're coming back in greater splendor, not just greater style. We're going to come back more glorious than we went. Uh, And that's good news. You know, I read in the newspaper that millions of people are depressed. I don't know where that went. But millions of people are depressed about the way they look. 
Maybe you're one of them. I've been looking in the mirror and uh, I've been thinking, oh dear. But you know what? The years are cruel, aren't they? Here's a face for you. Anybody know who that is? Some of you will be too young, but some of you will know him. Do you know who that is? That's the Milky Bar Kid. And the years haven't been too kind, have they? (laughs) Old Father Time's done him over in the back alley. (laughs) So... uh, you know, this is what happens to all of us. Our, our bodies grow weaker and uh, they lose their splendor. But the good news is, when Christ raises us, we're going to get an airlift and a facelift all at once. We're going to be changed. Our resurrection body is going to be incomparably greater in glory to this body. And to use this, he uses a series of contrasts. In verse 39, he talks about different kinds of flesh, of men and animals and fish and birds. And it's true, if you look at different creatures in creation, there's different types of flesh, aren't there? Uh, I always think of like, Uh, cats, little kittens. You know, who doesn't love little kittens? If you saw somebody out in the street abusing a little kitten, you'd phone the police. And yet, all your neighbours over the next few weeks are going to be going around their gardens with slug pellets to poison and kill the little blighters that come after your flowers. Why aren't you going after them with the police? I'll tell you why. Because there's a different kind of flesh, isn't there? You know, the slug is incomparable to the beautiful kitten. And that's what Paul says. is like difference between men and animals, fish and birds. That's why some animals taste better than others. And I enjoyed the animals I ate for lunch. And uh, I'm not a vegetarian. But you get the point. There's a contrast here. But Paul says that's the contrast there's going to be, like the contrast in creative life. He also says it's a contrast between celestial and terrestrial bodies in the next verse. In verse 40, there are celestial bodies and there are terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Well, let's take the, the, the uh, link language and make it a bit easier. Celestial means heavenly bodies. He's talking about the angels. Think of the bodies of the angels. How bright and radiant and glorious and powerful they are. Now, we've got great bodies. We live on earth. But at the moment, our bodies are nothing like theirs. They have celestial bodies, heavenly bodies. We have terrestrial. The glory of the one is is fantastic. The terrestrial is another. So there's a contrast in splendor there as well. He says it's also the same with us space bodies in verse 41. There is the glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. And for one star differs from another star in glory. You know, I've grown more and more fascinated uh, with astronomy over the years and uh, read more books on space in my later years than I ever read when I was at school. And it's fascinating to learn about the stars and all the differences between them. You know, stars, are we look up, up in the sky and we just see little white dots. You see them through a telescope, you'll see different colours. You know, some are blue and they're hotter than the red ones, which always goes back to front to me, uh, but they are. And uh, there are some that have different uh, 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 powers and so on uh, of brightness. Some are shining from far, further away. Uh, and even though they are smaller in the sky, they are actually shining brighter from a greater distance. When you get into it, it's amazing. There's a difference between the glory of the stars, just what Paul said. And by the way, how did he know that without a telescope? That's inspiration. 
That's inspiration right there. There's the glory of the sun, which is greater than the glory of the moon. And these are the contrasts he, he draws on from creation. And then he says uh, so that there's a, a greatness in glory. And I have to say, I'm looking forward to the greater glory in our bodies in the future. And then he says there's a, there's a, a contrast in strength. If that comes up, strength in verse 42 to 44. He says, so also is the resurrection of the body dead, of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is sown in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And uh, what Paul is talking about here is the difference in our resurrection bodies in their strength to the bodies that we have today. And he says uh, that it is going to be much greater. In verse 42, uh, he uses the word corruption, which means, I believe, decay due to sin. You know, you may not believe it, but you're looking at a dying body right now. And so am I. We're all dying from the moment we come out the womb. And our bodies are beginning to decay. And that's as a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. You know, this became very real to me when uh, my granddad became ill. My grandfather was a farmer and he was a strong man. And we used to love playing with him. And, and, you know, we couldn't out-wrestle him. He could pick us up under his arms. You know, when he got older, he got Parkinson's disease. And he died of it. And at the end, my mum wouldn't let us see him because we remembered him so strong. But he became a shriveled wreck of an old man. And when they buried him, everything that's true here, that Paul says here, was true of him. He was buried in corruption. That, cor- that farmer's body with all its muscles buried in corruption. Buried, verse 43, in dishonor. In weakness. In verse 44, a natural body. So sad. But oh, what a change when the resurrection body comes. What a change. It'll be raised in corruption. It'll never, never get Parkinson's again. It'll never be ill again. It'll be raised in glory, in power, a spiritual body, able to do spiritual things. You know, it's absolutely fantastic, this, isn't it? The contrast in strength. And you know, this gives, this gives tremendous hope to believers. Do you remember Joni Erickson Tada? the lady who was uh, 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 in a wheelchair, she said this on this very matter. She said, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, astrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, because she had a diving accident when she was a child, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope This gives someone spinal cord injured like me or someone who's cerebral palsied, brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who's a manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. It's true, isn't it? Isn't that absolutely wonderful? Paul says it's also going to be greater in source. And that's what he says in verse 45 to 49. 
He says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, I haven't got time to go into all the things in verse 45 to 49 because he makes a, a wonderful detailed comparison between the Lord Jesus Christ and Adam, our first father. Uh, if anyone wants to borrow it, I've got a tape by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on these verses and he does it better than me. But I, I want to say this, that basically Paul's point is this, that we get our first body from our first father, Adam. And that's why he says the first Adam became a living being. He became the father of all mankind. But we get our second resurrection body from the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a life-giving spirit. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead and given a new body or a transformed body, so we will also. Verse 42, the first man was of the earth, made of the dust. You remember Adam was made out of the ground. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And he says, as was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Man, that's exciting, isn't it? That's fantastic to realize that we are going to have a body with a far better source like the Lord Jesus' resurrection body. This is something to get really excited about. You know, the missionary John Patton went out to the South Pacific. And uh, as he was going out, uh, a lot of people tried to discourage him from going. Not only was missionary work really quite rare in those days, but the risks were great. And one person in his church came up to him and said, You mustn't go, John. You mustn't go. You might get eaten by cannibals. To which he replied, Yes, I might. And when you die, your body will be eaten by worms. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he will raise us both in his likeness. (laughs) What a contrast and what a hope we have. So have a look at the greatness of our resurrection bodies and get excited about it. You know, most Christians don't think about it. They look like the two caterpillars on the branch when a butterfly flew by. And they look at them and say, oh, you never get me up in one of those things. (laughs) Well, you know what? It is coming, whether you like it or not. Look forward to it and see the greatness that Paul speaks of here in the body that God is going to give you. Second thing we see here is the need for the resurrection body, and that's what comes out in verse 50. Paul says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now you may be thinking about all this and thinking, well, this is all great, but why do we need this resurrection body? Why are we going to need a resurrection body in the future? Well, the answer is very simple. You can't get into heaven with this body as it is. This body is sin-stained, sin-weakened, and it is dying. And heaven is a pure, perfect, and eternal place. So you can't go there in this it's a little bit like some of those fancy restaurants that I never go to, where they have a sign outside, you're not allowed to in without proper dress, you know, and uh, you've got to wear a tie or something like that. And uh, that's what it's like in heaven. You're not allowed in unless you have a resurrection body like Christ's body. And as Paul says here, nor does corruption 
inherit incorruption. And you know what? Even if you could get up into heaven in the body that you have now, you wouldn't enjoy it. Because you would be like a fish on the sand or a garden bird in the water. You wouldn't be able to function in it. Now think for a moment. You will need resurrection eyes to gaze on Christ in all his glory. You know, in Acts chapter 9, we read about the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus and he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was blinded by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul never got over that. He writes later on in the book of Galatians, he said, you would have given me your eyes if you could because his eyes had never recovered. And he often said in his letters, you know, see what big letters I write with. Because his eyes had been damaged by the radiance of Christ's glory. We're going to need resurrection bodies with spiritual powers to be able to see him and serve him. Spiritual powers like Christ's body. Think of what Christ's body could do. It could walk through walls. It could travel at the speed of thought. It It had the power to turn invisible, to disguise itself. It's awesome. It was amazing. You know, if you got to heaven and you saw people with their resurrection bodies, you would think to yourself, man, why didn't I get one of those? That's amazing. And uh, so Paul says, you and I need this. You and I need this. And I want to say, that's why you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. Because you won't be able to inherit the new heavens and the new earth unless you have this. And no one else can give it to you. I showed this uh, a few sermons back, forgive me for repeating it, but uh, I found in the paper a story about a lady who travelled abroad on her husband's passport. You know, the photo didn't even look the same, but somehow she managed to get through customs and travel to other countries on her husband's passport. Some people think they're going to get to heaven on someone else's passport. You know, my mum was a Christian, or my dad was a, a, a churchgoer. Listen, friend, you need your own passport and only Jesus can give it to you. You have to ask him to save you from your sins and trust in his death on the cross for you to give you eternal life. And as he promises to redeem you, he will give you the resurrection body at the last day so you'll be able to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Then we see the timetable for the resurrection body in verse 51 and 52. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. You know, in 1803, uh, Thomas Jefferson commissioned what was called the core of discovery, a brave group of men who were to push into the interior uh, of America under the leadership of Lewis and Clark and to push into unexplored areas to discover and write back what they found. Well, here Paul tells us of his own core of discovery, he says, and he takes us into it and he says, I want to tell you a mystery. I want to reveal things to you. And the shocking revelation that he brings to us is that we may not have to actually die to get our resurrection bodies. Now, that is going to be the normal way, because like burying a seed in the ground, that's how uh, the, 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 the flower comes up. That's normally how the resurrection body is going to come at the end. But there is another way in which it can happen. And that will be, according to verse 52, at 
the rapture of the church. Now, what are we talking about here? We're talking about when the Lord Jesus comes for his people. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, Paul gives us the definitive passage on this. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The day is coming when we will hear the last trumpet, as Paul calls it here, as the Lord Jesus calls uh, his church home. And this is uh, something which in the prophetic program is going to happen at the beginning of a period of time of judgment which is to follow. You know, in Numbers chapter 10, the Israelites blew trumpets to gather the congregation to Moses. You had 600,000 people when they came out of Israel, out of Egypt, and of course the numbers grew in their 40 years in the wilderness. How were you going to gather people together? Well, they had silver trumpets, and they blew them to gather the people to the tabernacle. And Paul is using this type of analogy here. He says, when Christ comes, we will hear the sound of the last trumpet, the, 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 the trumpet, the, I can't remember, the, the shofar, the gedalah shofar, I think it's called, uh, the last great trumpet sounded at the Feast of Trumpets, or like that trumpet at, in the tabernacle, and we will be gathered to him. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be changed, and they will be like his body isn't that a fantastic thing one day in the future God's prophetic program is going to bring to us the moment of change in a twinkling of an eye so sudden you can't see it the Greek word is for an atom you see today people are leaving the earth one by one in the 1700s there was a composer by the name of Franz Joseph Hayden I'm sure you've heard of him and on one occasion he was uh, given the privilege of uh, putting on a performance for a great uh, uh, European monarch and the European monarch loved it so much that he wouldn't let this orchestra go And it became a bit of a problem because these people had families to go back to and they had some of the younger musicians had schools and colleges to go back to go to. And uh, the, the monarch wouldn't let them go. He was holding them. He wanted this music all the time. So Hayden came up with a very clever plan. He wrote a piece of music for a whole orchestra where one by one each musician comes off after they've played their piece. And when they came off after playing their piece, they were smuggled out of the country (laughs) until only he was left. And sorry, sir, but I've got to go too. Very clever. And you know what? That's how believers are leaving the world today. We're leaving the world one by one. But one day when the Lord Jesus comes, believers are all going to go together. We're going to be caught up, ready to meet him in the air. I want to ask you this question. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour? You're not heaven bound until you're heaven born. You must be born again and know the Lord as your saviour. Sorry about my PowerPoint. I've had some problems with it today. The final thing I want you to see is the victory of this resurrection body in verse 53 through to 57. And in verse 53, Paul says, 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Very simply put, the victory of the resurrection body is victory over death. You know, the man who invented the bulletproof vest, or actually, more specifically, the manufacturing process of it, was a Christian. His name was Patrick Young. And he did it because he wanted to help save lives. He believed if people lived longer, they would have more chance to hear the gospel to get saved. But, you know, when you become a Christian, Jesus doesn't just give us a bulletproof body. He gives us a deathproof body, a body which will be overcoming death itself. Even after we die, we will come alive again, just like he did. We'll put on immortality, as he says here. Now think of that. That will fulfill Isaiah's prophecies mentioned here in verse 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. And the one from Hosea, uh, chapter 13, mentioned in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? But again, how come... Will these things happen because of Christ's death and resurrection? You see, as he says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. The sting of death has been taken by Jesus. Uh, There's a famous Bible teacher from many years ago by the name of M.R. Dehan. And he had some boys who were playing in the garden, his own boys. And uh, one of them was being chased by a bee. And he ran after the bee and he caught the bee in his own hand. And the bee stung him. And then he released it. And the boy got panicky. Dad, the bee's flying around. He said, don't have to worry anymore, son. And he showed him the sting in his hand. He's already stung me. He's not going to sting you. The sting has been taken. Well, dear friends, that's what the Lord Jesus did for you and me. He took the sting of death when he died on the cross. And now we don't have the sting of death in us. The sting of death is sin. Jesus died for our sin. The strength of sin is the law. Christ uh, fulfilled the law and met its requirements in his life and cancelled its debt on the cross. So we can say in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, dear friends, the best news in all the world came out of a graveyard. What a strange place. But it did. He has risen. He has risen. He conquered death. And he'd taken away the sting of death. And he gives us his victory. Have you got that victory? Or do you live in fear of death? If you go to America, you can see in California, I believe it is, Winchester House. And Winchester House is a phenomenon. Because it's an absolutely massive, massive house. And it's bizarre. It has doors that open on brick walls. It has windows with walls behind it. It has passages that go nowhere. Extension upon extension upon extension. And the story behind this weird house is that Sarah Winchester, the wife of the... You remember Winchester Guns from the old cowboy films? Well, this was his widow. 
And when he died, when Winchester died, she did a very foolish thing. She went to see a medium, a spiritist, and consulted clairvoyance. And she was told by a spirit, when you stop building that house you started building together, then you will die as well. That's a warning, isn't it? Don't ever play around with the occult. It won't help. But she did that, and it put the fear of death into her. And so she poured all the money from Winchester Rifles into building and building and building, and it was ridiculous because she was paranoid about dying. You know, I meet people all the time who've got the fear of death in them. But if you know Christ, you know victory over death, and you know peace. So that's the resurrection body, Paul says. And his great conclusion here at the end of the chapter is this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If we serve a God who gives us something eternal, like a resurrection body, as well as salvation through, uh, the, uh, as well as uh, spiritual cleansing from our sin, then this is eternal stuff we're about. What we're about is worth putting our effort into. Don't give up. Be steadfast, immovable in it. And if you're a Christian, go on in these precious truths. If you're not yet a Christian, you can come into them by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Look to him in faith today and one day a resurrection body like this will be yours. Let's sing our final.